Hola, pod peeps across the digital domain. It's the Deacon's Pod, where spirituality and justice meet real American life in the 21st century. I'm Deacon Dennis. Say hello to my co-conspirators, Paulist affiliate Deacons, Deacon Tom and Deacon Drew. So here we are again. Welcome to our podcast. This is Deacon Drew. How are you? And how are you, Deacon Tom and Deacon Dennis? I'm doing fine down here in Florida, Deacon Drew. Thank you very much for asking. It's, it's been busy uh, down here. I'm a little bit of a caregiving mode, taking care of some folks who is that need some help. It's been busy, but all is well, and they're progressing fine in the recovery. And this is Deacon Dennis. I'm also in Florida. I'm down the road from Tom there. And we're doing well. We're doing well. We're a lot getting busy and things are ramping up for me. Just got back to the parish from up north and, you know, all that's going forward and doing various things like this and things for the diocese back home and articles for Let's Talk, the Paulist prison newsletter. And so all of a sudden I'm looking at my calendar going, I better get to work here. I said yes to a lot of stuff. So that's what I'm doing. How's the weather down there in Florida? It's always good. It's, it's like 80, 82 good. and yeah. sunny a, and, you know. It's always good, said the two guys who just went through one of the worst hurricanes in Florida's history. Yeah. But well, I wasn't okay. here for it. I was in Connecticut, so I, you know, we didn't even I, lose power here where we are. No. A couple of leaves down. Yeah. Florida's a big state. Yeah. It's not like. You know, if a hurricane hit Connecticut, it pretty much hits all of Connecticut one way or the other. But down here, it's a big place. Well, New Jersey is a beautiful fall weather has hit and the leaves are turning and they're falling off the trees. And we had some rain earlier this week, but we're good today. So I'm good. And is everything going okay with your churches and where you guys are serving? Yeah, we're starting to see a little improvement, slight improvement for uh, mass attendance. We just got a, had a liturgy meeting the other day, getting ready for the new liturgical year, new cycle A that begins in the end of November. So Advent season coming Christmas. So we've got the agendas filled. Yeah, same, same, yeah. same. Yeah, you said you were getting too busy, Dennis. I mean, you didn't say too busy, but. No, I got a lot. I just yeah. realizing as I, I look at my calendar that I got a lot of presentations to put together, places to be and. It's like, well, you can't just kind of like, yeah, I'll get to that. It's like, you need to start getting to it now because it's a pile. So, you know, you want to be ready when the bell rings, you know? So one of our listeners wrote in and said that they would like to hear what our vocation stories are all about. And we talked about that before we went on the air and we thought maybe that would be a nice thing to talk about. But before we get to our vocation stories, because we are deacons, we thought maybe it would be helpful to some people to know exactly what a deacon is, what a deacon does and how a deacon may be different than a priest or a bishop or anybody, really. And to really understand what a deacon is, I think, and my partners here agree with me, we need to go all the way back to the very beginning, to the Acts of the Apostles in chapter 6. Now, during those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the twelve called together the whole community of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait at tables. Therefore, friends, select from among yourselves several men of good standing, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, 
whom we may appoint to this task, while we, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and to serving the word. What they said pleased the whole community, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, together with Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And they had these men stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. The word of God continued to spread. The number of the disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So we see that this is the institution of the first seven deacons. And there's a couple of interesting things here that I think some of our listeners would pick up on immediately. First of all, you can see that even when the church was growing in leaps and bounds and even expanding across the known civilized world at that point in time, there was still infighting. So our church today is not much different. The Hellenists, which were the Greeks, the Gentiles, if we, if you will, were fighting against the Jewish people. I mean, remember, our church began as a Jewish church. Jesus was Jewish. So you see that we're human beings, and we had to work these things out. And that's, the, and that's one of the ways they worked it out, is they asked for the Holy Spirit to give them wisdom. The second thing is, I think, and it's, this comes right out of the Senate, if you will, not trying to start any controversy here, but they picked seven men. Now, later on in the scriptures, when you read the letters of Paul, you can see that some women were called deacons as well. And there is some controversy, although I don't think it's much of a controversy because I think the history is clear that women deacons did serve. And the question is, did they serve as much? Be that as it may, the Senate has recognized that the question of the women diaconate at least is on the table for discussion. I hope I haven't overstated that, and I'm sure one of my colleagues will tell me if I have. The only thing I want to comment on is the fact that people are still surprised that there's infighting in the church to this day. It's like, there it is, page one. First meeting, we, you know, you know, Acts of the Apostles, it's like, and we're still shocked, stunned, and deeply saddened. Yeah, and it just reminds do. me of what Mrs. Classy always used to say. Mrs. Classy always says, people, no wonder God drowned the first bunch. <laughs> well, that, that's a happy thought. Yeah, yeah well, I mean, thought. you know, there's a little bit of there's there's hope to it. There's hope. I mean, it's like people are difficult. God should have used angels, not us, but there it is. Nothing well, new. That's why we don't know the mind of God. But having said that, I think it's interesting also to note that Stephen, the one that is called out as the first deacon here, was also the church's first martyr. And this is where I think it starts to get relevant to us today. Stephen was martyred because he was preaching. You know, if you read that literally what was just said, it looks like the deacons were chosen to wait on the widows and to wait on the tables and to do that service. It quickly expanded into greater areas of service, including preaching the word. And so those were the first deacons. Now, there's and a Philip, long... too, by the way. Philip, I'm sorry. sorry Philip, Dennis. too, is following that. Right. A, right. A, a whole bunch a whole of story. stuff of Philip running around converting the Ethiopian eunuch and preaching to, you know, I mean, the Holy Spirit does what he wants to do or she wants to do with whatever we propose. So, yeah. So Those are the two big deacons right there. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> and then there's a whole history, which it, it, we just don't have time to go into. In the Middle Ages or leading up to the Middle Ages, the deacons' roles expanded. Then they, were, then they started to fade away a little bit. 
And so by the time we get to the 20th century, we really did not have an order of deacons anymore. Now, that just skipped over uh, 1,900 years of history. But we had deacons, then we didn't, and now we do. So what happened? Well, we did have transitional deacons. I mean, we've never been without deacons. But what they did is they put it as a step for seminarians on the way to priesthood. That's what happened to it. And of course, it's arguable whether it's an actual diaconate because it was three to six months you were a deacon before they ordained you a priest. Right. And during that time, you were being taught how to be a priest in a parish. You were not down at the soup kitchen and the prison and all that. It wasn't even part of the, wasn't even thought of it was you were an, an intern priest or something, you know, whatever you want to call it. And, but technically they had the diaconate. But it was a name only, I would say. And I think that's right. And without calling out names, I think there are some priests today who sometimes forget that they were deacons. And then there are some that don't, because you remember when we interviewed Father Martin, he said that, you know, he was proud to be a deacon. So what happened next? Well, again, a lot of analysis, a lot of history. So we'll just try to keep this short. But Vatican II happened. And in Vatican II, Paul VI entered that call, and the diaconate, the permanent diaconate was reestablished or established, because I don't know if it was ever a permanent diaconate before that. But this allowed married men to become permanent deacons, and it was a big step. It affected me personally. My father-in-law, and when we later we talk about our vocation stories, I'll talk about this. My father-in-law was in the second class to be ordained in the Archdiocese of Newark back in 1977. What does that mean? What did, what can deacons, who are deacons and what should they be doing? Well, we are ordained clergy. We're ordained by a bishop like priest, and there are deacons, there are priests, and there are bishops. The diaconate is to serve the liturgy, the word, and charity. It's a ministry of service. And there, that means so many things, but essentially we can preach when called upon to do so. We can bless marriages and witness marriages. We can conduct funeral services without a mass. We can conduct wake services, communion services. We take communion to the sick. And then we do all the other things and all the other ministries, which my deacon brothers here will talk to you about in just a minute. But those are our primary duties. The preaching duty is something that some deacons don't some deacons are allowed to do, other deacons are not allowed to do. It really falls to the pastor. Now, we have a special relationship under the Vatican documents with the bishop. But of course, the bishop delegates the administration of the deacon to the pastors in each of the parishes around the archdiocese or around the diocese, except for those who may work in the chancery, of course. That's my very short lecture on who a deacon is, what a deacon is, and what a deacon does. Tom, Dennis, corrections, additions, addition, explanations, ba- clarification. Addition, baptism. We do baptism. I left too. out baptism? Yeah. One of my one of the most fun things you get. Yeah, to do. I can't believe I left out baptism okay. because yeah. I agree a thousand percent. It I love doing baptism. Oh, Did cool. I leave out anything else? Like, you no. know, doing obey, obeying your wife. Again, I think the key thing for listeners is that it's going to be quite varied. First of all, it's not an experiment, but it kind of is in the sense that we're making this up as we go along. And what you can do as a deacon depends on what your skill set is, what your interests are, 
because service, you know, it's like you're ordained to serve. Well, serve what? Well, you could be the bishop's secretary. I mean, I couldn't be the bishop's secretary, but maybe one of you guys could. Or the, you or know, the chauffeur. That's a skill set. That's service. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you could be like me and Tom and be prison chaplains, full-time prison chaplains. Yeah. Many deacons become administrators of parishes. Yeah, with the priest okay. shortage. But again, you wouldn't want me administering your parish. No, you know, you'd want either. someone yeah. with a lot more administrative ability. But, you know. Yeah. But Some that's the math, math skills are helpful. Math skills would be good. Yes. Yeah, like Tom. No, yeah, that's no, right. Fine. One is what? I'm an old finance guy. That's who you want doing the books, not me. But then other people can preach. Other people, it's like Paul says, many gifts in the body, same spirit and all that. So what my point is, you're going to see a wide range of things. And the diaconate's pretty much what you make it and what you can make it and what your interests are. It's all good stuff. It's one form of serving or another, but some of it's more visible. I mean, obviously, if you see Drew preaching from the pulpit, that's more visible than Tom in a prison. But smaller still audience. Serving. Still yeah. serving. Part of the history, I think, too, of that, that was key when you talked, Drew, about Vatican II and the restoration of the diaconate. Some of that conversation started in the death camps in Nazi Germany. When the question was asked in the priest quarters, like, how do we get to this place where you've got Catholic uh, Germany, Catholic uh, Italy, Catholic Spain turning into these totalitarian regimes that cause so much devastation? And the conversation, we're missing something. Why aren't we reaching the people? Why are, uh, how come there's this big gap between what the clergy of the day know and how these nations could get so wrapped up in this destructive movement? So that, those conversations came out with, Ooh, I forget who, Dennis, who was the, one of the major proponents of the restoration of the diaconate? Karl Rahner, a whole bunch Rahner, of uh, yeah. the, German, the German bishops and priests and theologians. They were pushing that, like you said, from the priest block in Dachau is where it started. And they pushed it for years and pushed it into Rome and stuff. And that's why the Second Vatican Council, and I would argue, and other people have argued, that the restoration of the diaconate, which the entire world was not clamoring for. I mean, they passed it, and the Germans and the people that Tom was talking about were thrilled and vindicated and all that. But most of the church, it's like, what do we need deacons for? You know, most of the bishops like, yeah, I guess it's okay if you want it. You know, I mean, you go south of the equator, you don't find deacons on this planet. Correct, yeah. They got catechists in the missions. They got, it's like, we got lay people doing this job. But uh, that's neither here nor there. That's another conversation about sacramentality. But the point is that this came out of a very dark place and a really deep question of, okay, how do Catholics become fascists and Nazis and do this kind of stuff? And part of it was, you know, the big gulf. And I mean, yeah. that's, I mean you know, the whole thing I've heard people talk about, I'm not sure this is true, but it kind of fits with this is that you got to remember these bishops at Vatican II in the early and mid-60s, they were the priests during World War II, say, in Europe. They lived this stuff. They saw this. That's right. And one of the things with the liturgy, which was the first document, I believe, that they passed, this whole thing of facing the people was we have to tell people God is here, look around, not to the eastern wall where God is up there, out there on another planet. And maybe if we start to face people, face the congregation, this would get people to help them not think that I can go to mass and then, you know, go to work at the gas chamber and, you know, it's all good because I got orders and 
you know, God's out there. So anyways, there's a lot to that, but it came from a very dark place. And that's uh, interesting. That, that aspect, you've taken us to a very dark place. So why don't we try to come back to the light? And the light to me today is what are our vocation stories? So who would like to go first? Dennis, you're the oldest one here, ordained. Lead us on. Yeah, this year, it'll be 30 years I've been a deacon. So my vocation story, so as a kid, you know, I was, uh, you know, practicing Catholic and, you know, I went to school, conventional Catholic, you know, I, I touched the bases, I went to mass, I was an altar boy, you know, so, you know, I was, I guess I would say, like everybody else, I was prepared to give God his rightful place, a small part in my life. And then, you know, and I had plans and I got to high school and I went to Catholic high school too. And I was, you know, thinking about law and a friend of mine, my senior year, asked me if I wanted to go on a retreat. And he had been, and he said, it's really great. You should go. And I thought, oh, you know, because he said it was great. I thought, oh, maybe. And then my father had informed us that we were raking leaves that weekend. So that sealed the deal. So I was in. So <laughs> my brothers with the rakes and I went on retreat. And, and so I'm like almost 18. I'm like 17. So I'm sitting there, and this is apropos of nothing. I'm sitting there, and they're talking. Some guy's giving a presentation on something. I don't even know what it was because it really had nothing to do with that. But I made myself available, and I just had a tremendous religious experience. Uh, it just blew out all the circuits. It had nothing to do, again, with what the person was saying or what was going on in retreat. It just, you know, God grabbed me by the scruff of the neck, and the light went on. And it was quite, quite the experience. Now, so that was my, the great religious experience of my life right there. So then I went to college, majoring in poli-sci and pre-law, just like I was saying before. And I'm trying to shake this thing. You know, this is hound to heaven stuff, if you know that poem. And I couldn't shake it. And, you know, as soon as it got quiet and I was in my dorm room, it was like on me. So I said, well, I guess I got to be a priest. I mean, this is what you do. As far as I understood that, you know, you got to be a priest. God's calling you. So I thought about it. And long story short, I went to the Paulist fathers and they said, go away. Because they no longer, I was in college, I was a freshman in college. And so they're like, yeah, come back after college. We're not doing college kids anymore. Yep. And then, of course, the priest back home said, well, why don't you try the Dawson Seminary? I mean. So I did. And I graduated from there, a degree in philosophy and theology. And I left there, and it was an extremely unhealthy experience, let's say. And I just said, you know, if I'm looking at all these guys, and these guys are from many different dioceses, it wasn't just in my diocese. So this was a quite a, a national sampling. And I just like, you know, I will be drinking or something if I have to live with people like this. These people are not well. And the best people, as a rule, after graduation, they left. They bailed on the whole thing, uh, with some exceptions. So, some, uh, a couple of my friends became priests, and they were good priests, but guys I knew, whatever. But it's, a lot of them, they were, it was just not healthy. So I got out of that. And I said, well, Lord, what was that about? What, do you, what, what would you do that to me for? What am I supposed to do with this? And uh, so I went to Boston College and got my master's in religious education. That was a big thing, you know, and... The church was taking catechesis very seriously and was being redone. And 
international meetings, and it was just the biggest thing going. And I thought, well, okay, I could do this. This will be a, you know, a stable ministry. And then I spent many years bouncing from schools, parishes, this is a DRE, diocese, running the diocesan religious ed program. And basically, every time I turned around, being replaced by a nun who had worked for nothing, basically. So it's like, sorry, Skippy, you got to go. So <laughs> I made a career of going home and telling my poor wife, I don't got a job. And then basically one day when I was, I got an offer to be a prison chaplain. And I was like, what? This is a paying gig? Yeah, retirement and everything. I was like, you kidding? You know? Yeah. Oh, so I did that. So anyway, so that was the, that's the wind up. So I've been haunted by the Holy Spirit since I was 17. And I mean that in a good way. And it's pushed me through this, pushed me through that, you know, and, and my career up to that point was I was the first lay person to ever fill in the blank, to be a religion teacher in a school, to be the chairman of the religion department in a school, whatever, you know, I mean, I just, I was replacing nuns and the being replaced by them and all that stuff and working for peanuts. And my wife was a big supporter. She was a nurse. She worked and she, nope, this is your vocation. So God bless her. So anyway, we get to we get to the diaconate proper. So I'm teaching at a Catholic high school. And basically the short version is I have no thought of being a deacon. And what I've seen of deacons, I am not impressed. I don't get it. You know, it's just another guy on, an, on the altar wearing an alb and being basically an altar boy. And, you know, so, ba- so the short version is so I'm in one day I'm in school. And one of the teachers comes up to me and starts talking to me. And I'm listening and I'm saying, I don't know what you're talking. What are you talking about? And basically says, well, you're a deacon, aren't you? And I'm like, no. He says, you're not a deacon? I was like, no. I mean, I didn't even think about being a deacon. It wasn't even, you know, you might as well say you're not a nun. I, you know, it was just really off the wall to me. I was like, no, why would you think that? Oh, I thought you were a deacon. And he said, you know, you should be a deacon. And I thought, oh, okay, you know. That day, I don't. I think it was a parent of a kid that I was talking to, and they called me deacon. And I said, I'm not a deacon. I'm like, <laughs> what is going on today with this deacon stuff? So I go home, and I'm thinking about this, and I'm like, it's kind of nagging. And so I say to my wife, I get home, and I say, hey, Deb, guess what? And I tell her the story. And she looks at me and goes, yeah, I always thought you were going to do that. And I was like, what? And then that night, I'm talking to my mother, and I say, "Yeah, hey, funny story, Ma." And I tell her about this and uh, these people. And then my wife and she, my mother says, "Yeah, I'm surprised you haven't done that. I would have thought you would have done that years ago." And after that, I got done. I played it off. I got done. I sat down, and I looked up, and I said, "This is you, isn't it? This is to me. I I know when this ain't me." And certainly isn't the evil spirit trying to get you to be a deacon. So only leaves one possible person. And it's like, so this is you really a deacon. This is you're being, you're not being funny. And I can remember saying, okay, don't get the baseball bat out. I can, I hear you. I will look into it. That was as far as I would go. And I kind of crossed my fingers. So I called the diocese. I met with the people and I said, okay, I will give this a shot because I think this is God and not my idea. I fooled them. They ordained me. (laughs) (laughs) 
And it's 30 years later, you know, several <laughs> bishops down the river and I'm still here and having fun. But yeah, no, not my idea at all. But I was a lay minister, you know, even professionally for my whole adult life. So I've been honing my shovel a long time. So that's my story and I'm sticking to it. It's a fascinating story of you and the Holy Spirit to me. It really is. Very you much know? in the image of Isaac Hecker. There you go. Yeah. But this is the thing. You know, this is the thing you never know. If you're not paying attention when the Holy Spirit is moving you and moving the people around you and speaks through those people. I think it's, that's a wonderful story, Dennis. Thank you for sharing that. Correct. And that process of elimination trick is good for anybody. If it's not (laughs) your idea and you're like, no, I don't want to do this. I had the same process for prison chaplain. I don't want to go to prison. I'm not going there. And then you say, well, whose idea is this if it isn't yours? Well, does Satan want you to go and uh, minister to people and bring them the gospel? No. So who does that leave, Smarty? You know? So you can kind of triangulate this sometime when you have Passes these thoughts. of elimination, yeah. Well, Tom, if we're going by age and beauty, then I think you're up. <laughs> uh, not by beauty, yeah. Well, thank you, yeah. Some similarities with Dennis in the early years, growing up, going to Catholic school and, and getting all the, the good instructions from the nuns through Catholic College at uh, Providence, from which the first degree I got was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Army on June 1st. Then on June 2nd, we got our diploma. So you know what that meant. By September, I was down at Fort Knox in the year that they just came to realize that there had to be a rift. They weren't going to be using armor tanks over in the jungle. So I got a happy notice that I was rifted out. I did not understand what the word rift meant until three beers later at the officer's club, where it's a reduction in force, where they just decommissioned you, transferred you to a reserve unit. So I ended up back uh, working with the Treasury Department that I had left to go to Fort Knox and traveled all through New England working as a uh, assistant national bank examiner. And about seven, eight years into that, it just uh, too much of the conflict between what I knew in life of a spiritual dimension and the extreme wealth and uh, economics behind uh, the banking industry, the finance industry. And it left me conflicted. What do you, what should I do? What should I do? So I was asking that question of the Lord. Like, I know you've got something better for me than being a bean counter that would give some meaning to my life. So that had been going on in my head for quite a while, maybe a year, two years. During my travels, I'd stop in Boston and get to the Franciscan Center up there. And instead of going to lunch, we'd go over there for mass and place in Springfield where they had the daily mass in Hartford, Connecticut where a good diocesan priest, Father Ed McLean, I'd see uh, him quite often and was able to have conversations with him. And he kind of was a mentor on discernment. And that went on for a while. So comes to my birthday one day, and we had a, a place in town called the Polish Club. And my friend, a neighbor across the street who was Polish, said, let's go shoot some pool. So it was in winter, middle of winter. And I said, let's do that. So I was going to do jump in the shower and Several years before, we had a major ice storm. And the ice storm had left a huge limb dangling over the kid's sandbox. It was 35, 40 feet up in the air, so I couldn't get it. And uh, so the kids couldn't play in the sandbox. So it was my birthday, so I figured God owes me a little answer to this question that has been I've been asking for years. I said, hey, Lord, if you want me to do something different with my life, let that tree them fall. So 
get dressed, go out, shoot some pool, have a couple beers. I come home, we're going to go to dinner that night. And so back into the shower, I go. And as they come out with my blind vision, it had snowed. There had been snow on the ground. So I said, oh, by the way, let me check and see how that tree limb is doing. And I wipe the fog off the window. And I look out and don't you know, the damn thing has fallen onto the ground. And you hold like, oh, dear God, never fleece the Lord because he's going he's gonna to play with your head, especially if you're Irish. He enjoys that very much. So sure enough, it just set me on a different tangent as far as like, this stuff doesn't happen. I don't have the power to bring tree limbs down or any of that. And it just brought me into a deeper level of like, what is this all about? I had then, this was, this was when early in the diaconate and I was, I think it was probably around 30 at the time. And I checked with some people and we started actually to go through the diaconate program only to find out that you have to be 35. So I got rifted out of that too. Life went on, I went through and it did, uh, things did open up. I ended up working to help open up the soup kitchen in the diocese, worked for the diocese in the Office of Community Ministries at the time, working with a lot of the mentally ill people. That eventually gave way to a situation where because of complex relationships and money, I ended up back in the business world. A dozen years later, Dennis, who had been a long-term friend, started asking me, poking me like, what are you going to do? And and I said, well, no, I already tried that day. I and stuff. And I, I kind of moved on beyond that. But again, it didn't go away. So eventually uh, I uh, filled out the paperwork. They too accepted me and moved on to eventually be ordained and to just look back and see how God writes straight with crooked lines. And wow. what do you have to do? How, who does he pick? And, you know, you go through a lot of that self-image, like I'm not worthy to do this. Look at the great people who are out there doing these great things. But there's also a room that says many hands lighten the load and to go out and say, how has my faith touched my life? Oh, how do, what benefits have I received from it? And I think that's the message behind preaching is we're real people. Uh, we have life experiences. We share them with others because we're trying to share that message that the good Lord has for us to just be people, especially I think today's day and age when we get into some of the thoughts that the ministries I've had, we're there to be God's hands and ears and our world is in desperate need for that. So I've always had a history of working with elderly people. It's just be family and stuff like that. So I've moved in many ways to do that and to just try and be available for the Lord, keep his center, sense of humor alive in my life as he continues to let tree limbs fall in one way or another. So I've been and ordained of course, for Tom, you've been very happy doing this too. That's it's been a joy. joy. You know, yeah. we think we're going to, okay, we're going to make a sacrifice. But no. you and I, we <laughs> laughed all the time, and we were in prison. I know, really. You know, I mean, we were in the black hole of Calcutta, and we had a great time. So, you, you know, God, but also we never outdo of, God. We, I think in my case, it was, uh, and yours also, you spent a lot of time over at the women's prison where even some different skill sets were needed. But, yeah, you go in, and the inmates, one thing about the character of incarcerated people is they become quick judges of character. And the fact that you go in there, and you're not playing a head game with them is, is amazing. But you're right. I've gotten more benefit in, in, in so many ways just out of that personal relationship with people who you only know maybe for six months, a year, even in some of the other stuff I do, how people commit to our lives. You listen, you do what you can, and you move on. And um, you know that all is well. Who said that? St. Teresa, all is well. All will be well. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's been good. It's 18 years, I think, now. And uh, just looking forward to continuing to do what we can to be available, to be, to be here, to help people find a good life. 
That's an, a beautiful story, Tom. Thank you for sharing that. When, what year were you ordained? 2005. Well, I guess it's my turn. At least, yeah, just uh, last <laughs> but not least, Drew. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, the first shall be last and the last <laughs> shall be first. Uh, I, you know, to use that when you're last actually kind of ruins the whole concept. You know? <laughs> yes. Well, well it's funny to twisted people like us. We get the joke. Some people don't, but we appreciate it. So my vocation story, I think, I guess it begins, you know, when I was born. <laughs> At an early age. Not that I actually wanted to be a deacon when I was born because I didn't know what deacons were. I was born a Southern Baptist in Miami, Florida, and we went to church off and on. We were not what I would call regular churchgoers, but we did go from time to time. Of course, we went on Easter. And then when I was 14 years old, I became baptized in the Baptist church, full immersion and everything, the whole thing. And by that time, we were living in Georgia. So uh, again, there were very few Catholics around me. We did have a Catholic mission church in Lakeland, Georgia, where I grew up, and African-Americans attended that church almost exclusively to the best of my knowledge. But I was a Southern Baptist in a segregated town, so I really didn't have a lot of experience there. And when I was about 15 or 16, I joined the Methodist church in town. So my religious outlook changed a little bit, but it had nothing to do with theology. It was totally all around the youth group. The Methodist church had a much better youth group. <laughs> where my friends went. So I joined the Methodist church. Also, I really liked the Methodist pastor. We call them brothers down there. Brother, you know, this was Brother Carol. The reason I liked him was because as a young redneck in South Georgia at the time, he was one of the coolest guys I knew. He would go hunting with us. There was a lot of hunting going on in those days. And when he missed, he would curse. And that was just unheard of for a Protestant minister in South <laughs> Georgia, you know, to yell out a curse word in front of other people. So that was kind of my religious background at that time. And then as I went into high school and into my first year or two of college, I kind of went dark. There was not a lot of religion in my life. And when I say dark, I don't mean like a dark night of St. John of the Cross. I mean, it was dark. <laughs> it was like I switched off the lights myself. And then something really important happened. I met the woman who would become my wife. And ultimately... She was my wife, and she was a Roman Catholic. And I started going to Mass with her. Before we got married, I started going to Mass with her every Sunday. And I became interested in the Catholic Church, you know, the rituals. Back in those days in the 70s, there were still candles. You could smell the candles. And the and I guess, I don't remember where there would have been incense, but I suppose at weddings or funerals or something, it would have been the first time I experienced incense in a church in a Catholic church. So I started to get interested in the Catholic church. And then there was an interesting point where they would get up for communion and I was not allowed to go. And I said, well, what's this all about? Why are you doing this? And, you know, and why can't I go? Well, because it's the body of Christ. We believe it's the body of Christ. And when you believe that, then you can come with us too. And I said, what do you mean? You believe it's the body of Christ. You mean it's represents Christ. It's like we have communion in the Baptist church too, you know, once a year we have the symbol of the bread. And they're like, no, it's not a symbol. It's the body of Christ. And that wine, that's the blood. The body and blood of Christ is being consecrated on the host at every mass by the priest. Well, this started to actually kind of blow me away. <laughs> I'm like, if this is true, I need to get it. I need to know a little bit more, you know? And of course I came to believe that it was true. 
But I think it's important for my story because people, not that anybody really cares, but when people learn a little bit about my story, they say, oh, so you had to become Catholic to get married. Well, my father-in-law, who was one of the first deacons in the Archdiocese of Newark, we've talked about earlier in the program about the restoration of the diaconate. Well, he joined up pretty quickly. He said to me, I want you to understand that you do not have to be Catholic to marry my daughter. In fact, that's the worst reason in the world for you to become Catholic. Please do not do that. And I remember this conversation like it was yesterday, and, and it was 50 years ago. And I said, I want to be a Catholic. I want to know, I want this body of Christ. I want this. And he said, well, that's a good reason. <laughs> so <laughs> he put me in touch with a priest. This was way before RCIA. And I was trained and became a Catholic in 1975 on December 7th, Pearl Harbor Day, if you will. I was confirmed. And because baptism, you only get once, as we know, but, you know, to tell the rest of our listeners, baptism is only once. So my baptism as a Baptist took, and it worked. So I was confirmed, and I did a profession of faith in 1975. And then I started going to Mass every Sunday with my wife, as I always had, and now I started receiving communion. So we get married, and ultimately we join a parish in about 1984, 1985. My father-in-law has been a deacon for a few years. My wife gets more involved in that parish. She becomes a Eucharistic minister. And that kind of motivates me to do it. And then I became a lector because I thought that was the next step for anybody. I was a fledgling trial lawyer at the time. So I said, you know, I can be a lector. I can walk up and read the readings before the gospel. And it became uh, quite clear that was a completely different job than standing up in front of a jury or a judge and trying to convince them of something. And that came home to me when I was trained as a lector, and I was told that, yes, the Eucharist is the summit. It's the body of Christ. But Jesus Christ is present in the Word of God. So when you stand there and proclaim those words, even in the first and the second reading, you were bringing Jesus present to the people. Well, that kind of tugged at me a little bit, too. And tug is an important word, because what started to happen was I started to feel pulled. And I started to feel pulled to do something more and better and different, something felt that I needed something. You know, we talk of it as a call, but my story is a lot like yours, both of you, where you're in a situation and all of a sudden you realize this means something. Something is happening to me here. I need to do something more to meet this situation. And that's what it was for me. I mean, I like the language of the call. like. Peter and Andrew were called because Jesus actually called their names. But I felt like a pull. It was like it's constantly nagging at me. I've got to do more. I've got to do something. So I went to my father-in-law and I said, I, I think I want to be a deacon. And he said, Tom, this is very reminiscent. And to you too, I think, Dennis, for your story. He said, no, you're not ready. You're too young. You have very young children. You need to grow a little bit more. You need to live life a little bit more. You need to be sure. So I did. I went back and I waited. And then I really couldn't wait any longer. And I, you know, I entered the program like you did. One of the sad things in my life is my father-in-law never got to see me ordained. He died two years before my ordination. But, you know, I know he's with us. He's with us all the time, just as all of our ancestors are through the Holy Spirit. Communion of saints. I know Dennis is probably just about to correct me. The communion of saints. And I don't mean that in a bad way, Dennis. I mean in a good way. So that's essentially my story. I've been assigned to my home parish ever since. And I think that probably takes us into a conversation about, you know, 
how it feels to be a deacon. I mean, you've, we've all touched on that a little bit because I think, you know, like what is uh, one of our listeners said, what is the thing that you really love doing as a deacon? So going back to reverse order, Dennis, what is the thing that, that you just love to do? Or like, what's the best day you ever had as a deacon, if you will, or something like that? Well, I like a lot of this stuff. There's a lot of joy in, you know, as we said, in baptisms and doing weddings, for example, or even helping a family, you know, that's grieving the loss of a loved one with a wake and a funeral service, counseling people. There's all kinds of things that are just wonderful privileges that people let you into their lives. It's very, I mean, it's sacred and you know it, unless you're a knucklehead. You, you know, there are some out there, but you do know it. But the greatest experience as a deacon that I had that was overwhelming as a deacon, the greatest experience I had was that conversion experience at 17. But the greatest experience I ever had is I went on a pilgrimage with Mary Knoll down to Central America. And we went to see the martyrs, you know, Romero and all those people. Wow. And uh, where they were killed and we met the people and we stayed in the rooms. Because this, you know, this stuff happened 15 years before I went on this pilgrimage. So it was amazing because, you know, they have like in church history, you read about the martyrs and the confessors were the people that underwent the martyrdom but didn't get killed but they were there for it right and so i had this pilgrimage about modern martyrs many of whom are now saints recent saints and it was given to me by confessors by people who said this and yeah they used to sit right there where you're sitting and yeah you'd come here on this day off and you'd go over i mean it was just like I mean, it's such a small window of history where something like that, you know, could happen. But anyway, the point, the great day. So the great day was we went to Santiago Atitlan in Guatemala. That is the parish of Father Stan Rother, an Oklahoma priest who was down there working with a parish of Mayan Indians. He is now Saint Stan Rother, a new American saint. And they killed him. They killed him. The government killed him because he stuck up for Indians. And, you know, there were people trying to make money, take their land, this and that. You know, he did, he was an Oklahoma farm boy, and he taught people new ways of farming. He brought experts down. He set up co-ops. He really raised the level of these people's lives. And then when the, the army rolled into town, Stan stood them off by himself, and they actually left. I mean, it's kind of like Leo the Third, I think it was, and Attila the Hun at the gates of Rome. And Attila turns around and goes away. It was like one of those moments. Anyways, so they killed Stan. And I was sleeping that night on the floor in some room. And there was this little plastic Pyrex, I guess. Not Pyrex, that's glass. But, you know, like that. what's that hard plastic, you know, kind of stuff? Real hard. Like, anyways, it was clear. And it's just sitting on the floor. And I'm looking at it. And I'm going, what the heck is this? And I look at it. I pick it up. There's nothing there and hole in the floor and I put it back down and I don't know what this is. And the next day I asked one of the guys, what did, what is this thing over here? Should I move it or pick it up or what? And he looked at it, he goes, Oh, he says, come over here. And he picks it up and he says, see that hole there? He says, yeah, that's where they shot him in the head. That's where he was sleeping. And I'm sleeping in this guy's room. So, wow. So, I mean, I hear all about this guy, learn about him. 
So these were, I think they were the first people. One of the things he did with the women was he had a co-op where he taught them to make stoles. You know, those stoles you see, the multicolored ones with all the colors and other people make them now, but I think they were the, the first to make those. Because the women would do weaving, and like like you can tell a Scotsman's clan by their kilt, you could tell what village the women were from, the Mayan women, by the weave pattern in their dresses. But anyways, so he did all this kind of stuff. So they gave us each one of these beautiful stoles that the women made that had pictures of their parish and, you know, the area, the mountain and the oh. Lake Atitlan and all the stuff. And it was beautiful. So there were 20 of us. And priests, there was one priest, one brother, and me, one deacon. So we go into Stan's parish, and we're going to go to Sunday Mass with the people. Now, the parish is built in 1525 or something. It's a white colonial Spanish church. Think a Zorro movie or something. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. So we go in there, and we process in for the 11 o'clock Mass, and the place is full of Indians. You know, the only white faces were ours. And these people greeted us like rock stars. They had tears in their eyes when we walked in. They were giving us their babies to bless. They were grabbing at us, kissing our hands. I'm like, what is going on? And of course, it was just overwhelming. It was like being a rock star. And then after mass, they were all over us and just, you know, what could they do? And oh, just thank you for coming and all stuff. And so I'm talking to one of the marinal priests and I'm like, so explain this to me. And they said, oh, you don't know who you are to these people. I said, who am I to these people? And he, he says, you are Los Padres del Norte. You are the only people that ever cared for them. You are the only people who ever defended them. And I'm like, wow, I'm getting Stan's credit here. You know, I have never experienced anything like that. that was just unbelievable. And it was really nice to be in a place where people love the church and hate the church for the right reasons. You know, we don't like you because you defended the poor and the poor love you because you are their defenders. And I just, that was the greatest experience of anything I ever had as a deacon. A lot of fun stuff I do, but that yeah. was the biggest overwhelming. Yeah, you know, Dennis and I have talked about that, that profound experience to be with that kind of uh, people where like you, you're loved for the actions you've done, that, that, which is our challenge to love one another. And sometimes you have to put skin in the game and, and it cost you. And my God, gosh, we have so many of the martyrology of the church is full of that kind of sacrifice and even the thousands of souls that we don't even know their names for. But mine is somewhat more subdued. My ministry mostly has been, thanks to the fact that it worked on Saturdays, not much involved in the church, but that whole aspect of being a chaplain for prison. I've been a chaplain in the hospital and hospice and you just encounter people at the huge crisis in their life. It's not like us. We're kind of people who like to fix things. But when you're involved in ministry like this, you know that you can't fix anything. And I think here's where that theme of listening to God and trying to bring God's word. You know, you don't have to be a great person of knowledge or anything. What Our, our, our human condition today is looking for a presence and to just be with people who've lost their loved ones and listen. I used to do a lot more wakes and funeral services at my former parish because it was pretty much the biggest parish in the diocese for funerals and wakes. So it was quite often that I'd be doing, I'd be doing one or two a week 
And to be brought into the lives of families and at that moment is just such a overwhelming sense of our connectedness. You know, we're connected yeah. through the misfortunes of life and nobody wants to hear your story today, right? So when you go and you listen, people crave that. So it's that kind of ministry that I've been doing that has really, like Dennis said, gives a lot of nourishment. Like I go in and yet I come out with more than I've ever brought in just because you're being a human being in many ways. And I think the best part was in prison where I'd be in the unit that was the AA unit and to go for their, I think it was Wednesday morning prayer and to just be there to be with the guys for that where, you know, you have that raw honesty and from, for the most part, because a lot of those folks were, who got into that program were third and fourth time offenders and they knew they had to change their life at that point. They couldn't screw around anymore. So it's just being there and just being able to know that that same mystery that called me into, you know, God's a, Answering a prayer, if you would, we're the answer to prayers of people who are calling out for someone who cares. And I don't go into anybody's life without thinking that they're praying for someone to come in and listen. And uh, I think that's most, I'm more aware of that with the ministry of, of dealing with the people with grief and uh, in crisis. People in these times of their lives, they love for you to accompany them like that. I mean, that's a great story, Tom. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that you. accompaniment, that's a whole yeah. uh, idea yeah. of, I think, a new challenge that we all face. Right. Well, for me, you know, I agree with everything both of you said. I love baptisms, just absolutely love them. I did last week again. I like weddings, too. And I like after the wedding when the fa- two different families come together in the reception and really make w- one big family. I've had a couple of experiences, not as intense as yours, Dennis, but there was one time my wife and I were in Puerto Rico when we went to Mass. We found a church in San Juan, and as usual, the church was packed <laughs> with people because they go to church in the Latin American countries. And, and it was one little old priest doing the service, and when communion time came, there was like a lot of people lined up. So I, I stepped up to him, and I didn't even know if he spoke English because the Mass was in Spanish. And I said, Father, I'm a deacon in New Jersey. Can I help serve communion? He goes, oh, yeah. He got very excited. Gave me, gave me a swarm, and, and I, we did communion together. And then at the end of it, he says, what is your name? I said, Drew. So I go back and sit down. And there were some other American families, tourists, I guess, visitors in the congregation, which I started to notice. And the other mass, when he's saying goodbye, then he says, and before we leave, I want to thank Deacon Drew from New Jersey, who helped with communion <laughs> today. And the entire congregation stands up and, and applauds me. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I'm just doing my job. Yeah, but a little postscript. One of the Americans came up to me, and Vicky said, "You know, he could have said something about us. We're from New Jersey, or whatever." <laughs> it was pretty funny. And then yeah. the other one is somewhat similar to that. Is I did a guest preaching job down in Newark at an African American Catholic church, or a Catholic church that was primarily serving Af- African Americans, and it's a completely different experience than preaching in a white suburban church. Because I'm about a minute into my homily when I get an amen. <laughs> and, and then I get, and then somebody else decides. And pretty soon I'm putting, you know, I'm changing my whole homily, the cadence to meet this. And it was, I don't know how good the homily really was, but I had a great time delivering it because they had, they were so receptive to my homily. But perhaps one of my favorite things about being a deacon is on Ash Wednesday, because and I, you guys, you talked about this in various ways. We go out into the world, you know, and we don't wear collars and we're not immediately identifiable as deacons. 
And of course, people at work kind of know who I am or know that I'm a deacon. Not maybe not everybody, uh, but a lot of people do. But on Ash Wednesday, I take the ashes in. And they line up outside my door. And that just to me, it's a special thing that they're not going to get to church. They're, they probably haven't been to church forever. But hey, ashes, we can get ashes. Everybody wants ashes. You know, <laughs> and it's just a great time to minister without ministering. Just by uh, putting, uh, I mean, the ashes are, of course, ministering, but I mean, I don't have to say anything. It just changes the whole day. And everybody's yeah. walking around with ashes on their head. Yep. We used yeah. to have amen corners in the prison because, you you know, people come and they're not necessarily Catholic. Tom and I, we, you know, we would get the call and response thing going. <laughs> you know, and that was the first time it happens. You're like, what's yeah, that? Yeah. You know, what, what's happening here? Mm-hmm. But then you get into it, it's pretty good. So another question that we got was when we are in a really bad place, when it's been a bad day or a bad week or a bad year, what do we do to get out of it? Mm-hmm. What little thing do we always resort to to bring ourselves out of what's putting us in a bad place with the world or our lives or whatever. I run to the beach. I find nature to be very therapeutic to just restore your soul and the beauty and the calm that comes along. We, we don't go down there on hurricanes. We stay away. I'm, I'm not that brave, but it's a good place. You see uh, people having fun, the elements, and that uh, just uh, clears the mind. It's been there for 14 billion years, right? It's, uh, yeah, it's <laughs> kind of gives a sense of permanence. That's a good one, Tom. I uh, yeah, I have a couple different things I do. One thing I do is I like to play the guitar, and it's really become a mental health aid for me. And as much as I like to play it, I just need to play it when I'm in a bad place. If I can play the guitar, I like that I'm making the music, but I'm concentrating on it. It goes into my hands and comes back out into a good place. I do like the beat. That helps, Tom, when we, and that's a real refresher. We don't live near the ocean, but we go, we yeah. take frequent shore holidays, and, and that's a great one, too. And, and then, and she's going to hate that I'm saying this because the attention she never really seeks. But my wife, I just go to my wife, and she's always there to help me get to a better place. That was, you know, when I was contemplating the diaconate and I went to her father, I also went to her. And not knowing what she'd say, kind of like Dennis went to his wife. She's like, yeah, I thought you'd always do that. My wife was kind of the same way. She's like, well, of course, you know, I think it's a great idea. And I said, are you you really? You think that's a nice, a good idea? And I said, one of the things I said to her and was, I feel bad that I can do something that you can't do, that, you know, that you can't be a deacon. And she said something that was very common since she said, I don't want to be a deacon, but you can be a deacon. So I just hope, and this is my plug, and this is not, you know what they say when like, this is the opinion only of the guy talking and maybe not of everybody else. So to just get back to the whole synod process, I hope that there comes a point in time when if a woman wants to be a deacon, she can be a deacon. That's just my hope. That's my prayer. Dennis, well, what do you do to get out of the doldrums? I just wanted to say dolan doldrums in the synod. Yeah, I get it. I get it. But that's that's the prison chaplain thing there. You know, if you get a cheap shot and you don't take it, people are disappointed. So, you, gotta, you know, they, they tee it up for you. You got to take the right. swing. No, I don't have any big secret. I think I do kind of, you know, I do both the things you said. You go out in nature, I play a little music or whatever. I have other things I do, family, whatever. But I think the big thing to me is mindset. You know, when you, you know, you get disappointed 
you get empty, whatever. It doesn't happen much. I'll say that first, because I think if you stay prayed up, if you do your meditation, you do your spiritual reading, especially on a regular basis, you just, I don't have those bigs up and downs, but I do have them. And, and when I do, one of the things that I remind myself of from my spiritual reading, you know, if it's a church-related thing, if it's something disappointing in the church, which, of course, people complain to us about the church, like, oh, you don't want to have it, sweetheart. <laughs> you should know what I know. But, you know, church history, a knowledge of church history helps me because I know that, like, as bad as this seems, whatever you're talking about, this is nothing. Go read, you know, after the French Revolution or whatever. You know, go see what the church was doing then, what kind of problems involved. You know, this is nothing. I mean, it's something, but, you know, comparatively, it's nothing. Yeah, we mentioned it in the reading from the Acts. We have had troubles from the beginning. Yeah, yeah. And oh, we've yeah. had some yeah. really, really bad things. <laughs> but you're yeah. right, Dennis. You're right. Right. And, of course, the favorite parable, which we almost named this podcast, was under consideration, was the wheat and the weeds. You know, one of the parables, Jesus told us, like, hey, there's going to be weeds. Stop being surprised there's weeds. So that perspective helps me in having a good prayer life and friends and nature and all that stuff. And the other thing is, you know, it goes back to my childhood and my upbringing with, you know, you offer it up, mm -hmm. you know, you've got to accept the cross and this is your cross. And of course, if you're paying attention to what people around the world, I'd be mean, the biggest group of people persecuted in the world today are Christians by far all yeah, over the yeah. world. There are more martyrs today than there ever were in the Coliseum. And that's and the UN will tell you that this is not like some weird Catholic thing. This, they're killing us all over the globe. So my cross is the Monsignor was a jerk today. Okay, I think, I okay, Lord, I'll take that cross. Don't give me the cross these people in the global south are carrying where they're being firebombed at the Pentecost in their church in India or something. No, no. Of course, that never makes the news here. I'm always impressed by that. It's always like, really? Anyway, so I'm happy to take my little cross and say, you know, I can do this. So that's kind of basically an attitudinal way of getting out of it as well as the very good strategies you both use. Well, I think this brings us to the end of another podcast. We'd just like to ask you if you have enjoyed what you've heard today or if you've enjoyed listening to our earlier podcast, that you put the word out there and let your friends know. And especially if you have friends who may not be churchgoers anymore, who may be standing in the door trying to figure out whether they should come back or get out, the people that are on the margins. If you like what you're hearing from us, spread the word around and let other people know that they have some place that they can come to, to be welcomed and embraced. And because we got open arms, the church is a big place and we want everybody to experience the joy of Jesus Christ in the way that we do. And if not, it may be even in a better way than we do. So tell your friends, please. Thank you. Special thanks to El Jefe Paul Snatchko and our editor, David Dalt. The Deacon's Pod is powered by the Paulus Fathers. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts and, of course, at our own website, www.deaconspod.com. That's D-E-A-C-O-N-S with an S, Deacon's, plural, pod, all one word, dot com. And, of course, we'd love to hear your comments at our email address, which is deaconspod, again, with an S, deacons, at paulist.org. That's P-A-U-L-I-S-T dot org. Love to hear from you. That's our offering. We thank you for being with us. 
On behalf of our colleagues at the Missionary Society of St. Paul the Apostle, we wish you a future brighter than any past. Till next time.